Good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? Awesome. Well, it's great to be with you here. We are in our fourth week of this series, uh, When Relationships Fall Apart. And we're working through some of the lead up material uh, that leads to the, the passion material that we always talk about and celebrate uh, around Easter. And so one of the things that I thought we'd do today was I thought we would start by reading the Apostles' Creed. So that's something we've read for years as a church. And so I thought we'll read part of it today and I intend to kind of make a point with it. So we'll read it together. So for those of you that like public reading, this is gonna be a real win for you. So let's go ahead and do this together. Follow after me. It says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. There's a lot of big stuff in there. When you think about some of the pillars and the foundations of what we place our Christian faith upon, within the Apostles' Creed, you have creation, the Trinity, virgin birth, crucifixion, death, resurrection, current reign, and future judgment and Pontius Pilate. You have this guy, I remember even being a little kid, I was sitting in the, uh, the church pews and uh, I should have been paying attention. I think I was playing with like a G.I. Joe or something. Uh, and, and as I was sitting there, I can remember half paying attention, listening to the Apostles' Creed be read and hearing suffered under Pontius Pilate. And in my head, I remember going, I didn't know they had planes back in Jesus' day. What is a pilot doing in the Bible? And the reality is that's not what's going on. But to a little kid, that's all I could make sense of. Of all the people that's so funny that occupied Jesus' final days, the apostles, the high priest, Jesus' father and friends, this otherwise little known career politician, a junior governor who for all intents and purposes, church, disappears from the history books after AD 37 and we've been saying his name forever as a part of our church history. Pilate was the persona publica, the public authority. He was in a position of judgment in the region that Jesus was in, and it is not inconsequential for the conclusion of our series today that his judgment would not only fulfill the history books of Scripture, but beyond that, he would show us so much about what we should do when judged by the world, as his judgment is placed on Jesus, a guiltless man would die. We get to learn so much about that today. So before we go any further, before we dive in and start reading our text, would you guys bow your heads and pray with me? So Lord, we do. We come to you today in just recognition of we are reading your story, a narrative that you are a part of. We get to peer in. We pray to you today as you sitteth at the right hand of the Father Almighty, waiting for you to come back to judge the quick and the dead. In the in-between space, we sit here today reading about what you did, and our goal is to do two things, to look at what you did that we can never do but simply say thank you for, as well as to look at how you did it and ask ourselves the question, how can we follow in your footsteps and your example? 
As we look at that today, Lord, we just ask that you would lead and guide us as we walk through the scriptures together. Would you open our hearts to places where we may not see growth that needs to happen? Would you give us that heart that always says we are willing to give up anything that we need to to continue to follow after you? This is our prayer. We pray it in your name. Amen. All right, so this whole text today, we're gonna be in John 18, verses 28 all the way through 40. It basically breaks down into two parts, okay? It's the big conversation and the little conversation. So the big conversation is Pilate, Jesus, and the Jews, and the little conversation is just Jesus and Pilate. And so as we kind of look at that, let's start in verse 28, and we'll go ahead and read kind of some setting and some context here. It says this. Uh, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So remember, Jesus was arrested at what time of day? Say night. Night. Good. We're interacting. This is really good. Okay. Jesus was arrested at night in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's there. Peter cuts the ear off the soldier. That whole thing happens. And keep in mind, he's been up since then, and it is now what time of day? Early morning. How many of you do well without sleep? Okay, just a heads up, they did not stop at a Starbucks on the way to Pilate's place. Everybody's exhausted. And Jesus just is not just in a point where he's tired because he hasn't slept. I need you to understand that our Lord and Savior has started to walk through some of the most painful days of his existence on earth. He has been through a relationally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually stressful night, betrayals by Judas as well as Peter, the garden where when the Lord, his heavenly Father had given him revelation around the full enormity of what was about to take place on the cross. It was so stressful for him that the cells in his epidermis broke down. It says that he began to sweat blood. He's gone from there to a mock trial with the Jews, and he's walked from there now to what will be a worldly judgment in front of the reigning political power in Pilate. Here's what's really funny. The Jews are sitting there, and in the midst, it tells us here that it says they themselves did not want to enter the governor's headquarters so that they could eat the Passover and not be defiled. This is the apex of religious hypocrisy. They are remaining ceremonially clean so they can eat the Passover, and they don't want to defile themselves, religiously speaking, but are in the midst of committing one of the most heinous injustices the cosmos would ever see. And in the midst of this, We have this moment where they're basically showing up to Pilate and saying, hey, we need a favor. So let's go from there. Verses 29 through 32, this is what they say. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. All right, let's do this. Uh, Pilate and the Jews. They don't really get along, and I need you to understand that because it's gonna really color in this conversation that we're in the middle of. Most of today's sermon is gonna be this. I'm gonna tell you the story, and we're gonna apply it to our lives. So we need to understand the story, otherwise we're not gonna be able to apply it in a full and meaningful way. Here's the deal. 
Pilate is a junior Roman governor, and Judea, the region that they're in, was not a desirable posting. Within Judea were the Jews, and the Jews were not really loving Roman occupation. Remember, the Jews have been carted away and have been occupied by whatever the Middle Eastern superpower of the time was. So whether it was the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians, they've always, as they've conquered each other, there's sort of been this little handoff from one to the other. So they're basically sitting there and they're like, hey, you conquered us, you've got our land, you've got all of our important people and all of our treasure. And by the way, we've got these folks who've been hanging around since like Pharaoh, so we gotta figure out what to do with them. And that's the Jews. So the Jews are a nation unto themselves. They have their own law, but they are occupied by the Romans. So effectively, they need Pilate's permission to do a lot of things. And Pilate has a history with the Jews of constantly antagonizing them. The moment he got into power, he came in and he put up all of these huge statues of the emperor in their holy city. It incensed him. They were furious. So they staged a sit-in. I don't know if they got poster boards and wrote their emotions down and like stormed around, but they created a huge problem. Here's the bargaining chip that the Jews have. Pilate's primary job is to keep a steady flow of corn moving from Egypt back up to Rome. They need that in order to keep Rome, the capital city, going. So Pilate's job is to make sure that there's not an interruption in the economic supply chain. And anytime the Jews get upset and shut the city down, that supply chain stops. So it's basic math here. Anytime Pilate has a power play and upsets them, they screw up the supply chain and he has to back off. So he had to take the statues down. He comes back in, he puts up these relics, kind of pagan relics, in their holy area. They do the same thing. And the coup de grace of it all is Pilate goes in and steals the treasure from the Jewish temple, takes the profits and the proceeds to build an aqueduct, and they lost their minds. So here's the point. These two groups aren't making plans to fish and whittle. They hate each other. But what the Jews need is they need Pilate, and Pilate needs them in a good mood. So the first thing he says is, one, it tells us it's early morning. This is an agrarian culture. Everybody got up pretty early, so early in this context means like dawn. So Pilate's a little bit like, seriously, why are you guys bugging me? So the first thing he walks out and says is, what accusation do you bring against this guy? Like, why are you guys here? The Jews' response where they say, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Understand it this way. Hey, just take us at our word and do what we're telling you to do. They're hoping this is a quick conversation. They're not looking for any conversation with Pilate. They're going, basically, we've done our homework. What we're hoping happens next is that you just give us what we want. What is it that they want? Pilate cuts straight to the point. Great, you guys clearly are wanting him judged, which, mean, which means they want him dead. So he says, hey, take him and judge him by your own law. The Jews say, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. They want him dead. Here's what's funny about this. The Jews put people to death all the time. Remember, all those times, remember in Jesus' ministry where he's walking around and he's performing miracles and it upsets the Pharisees? What do they do? They pick up stones to stone him. That was how the Jews put people to death. So what they're doing with Pilate is not just, hey, we want this guy dead. They want an example made out of Jesus. 
They want to show that if you come in and you disrupt our religious process, we will make sure that you don't just die a death by stoning, but you die a criminal's death. Stoning didn't take a long time. I know when we sit back and go, that's a horrible way to die, getting hit with rocks. In the grand scheme of crucifixion, stoning maybe took 30 minutes. Eventually, you got hit in the head and you bled out. What they're going to do is they want a criminal's death that takes days. They want him to suffer, and that's what the Jews are here for. So when we step back and look at saying, hey, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death, they used to kill people, understand what they want is they want crucifixion for Jesus. And what is said in verse 32 that is so great is, whoop, back one, there we go. It says, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. This is so good. And this is one of those times where the Jews don't know what they're doing and Pilate is completely ignorant to this. But if we go back and we look at this verse in the context of the rest of the book of John, it gets really important. Take a look, John 3, verse 14. It says this, and as Moses lifted up the serpent, this is Jesus talking, in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Church, so many times when we hear this verse, we think of the ascension, okay? For those of you unfamiliar with basically kind of the flow of Jesus' last days, he comes in, he goes through what we're reading now, he's gonna end up, spoiler alert, if you don't know this, I'm sorry to ruin the story, he's gonna go to the cross and die, okay? And here's what happens. Dies on the cross, buried, we just read it. Dies, resurrects, walks for like 30 days or so, and then after that, ascends into heaven. When we read verses like this, we hear he must be lifted up, and we think the ascension. I want you to know, it is still true there, but it starts right where we are now. See, the way crucifixion worked is they would have laid the cross down on the ground, and they would have had a hole dug in front of it that would have perfectly fit the post. Once that hole was dug, they would have brought Jesus in. They would have taken him and they would have laid him down and, and soldiers would have restrained him. And while he screamed in agony, they would have driven a nail through his wrist. Once that nail was driven and he couldn't move anymore, they would have pulled him back and stretched him out on this side and done the same thing. After that, I think sometimes we make it so quick, oh, well, they just drove a nail. They would have taken the nail and started it through one leg. They would have lined it up to the other, driven it through both legs. Once he was immobilized, because now he had something driven through his shins and all the soft tissue, they would have lined him up on the cross and adhered him to it finally. And the next thing they would have done is what this verse is talking about. They would have lifted him up and put him in place where he would have died. You see, the reality that this verse is talking about is not just the ascension, it's when he is lifted up away from the earth to draw all to himself. Why? So that those who believe in him would have eternal life. John 12 goes on to clarify it even further. Jesus again says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. What does that mean? It means once he's lifted up, and about to do what only he can do, he draws the sin of the world to himself, opening up a forgiveness for all who come to him and believe, right? 
that he'll draw all people to himself. Why? So that whoever believe may have eternal life. Do you hear that this starts at the cross and is still true at the ascension? But it has to be true at the cross where he is lifted up at great pain. And it's the fulfillment of the words that Jesus had already spoken about himself. Do you know what I love about this? The Jews don't even know what they're doing. They actually hate Jesus and they don't want anything to do with his ministry. And yet, they are perfectly fulfilling what's about to happen by not stoning him. Had they stoned him, it wouldn't have been the fulfillment of his words. But their anger is driving them towards the, one of the great fulfillments of the scriptures. You see, God's using even the hatred of the Jews who don't want anything to do with him to fulfill the perfect plan. Do you think that has anything to say with our lives today? That even the most horrible things God can use for the good of those who love him? The big conversation's over. As we move into verse 33 and 34, it says this. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Here's what's great. Big conversation's done. The Jews won't enter Pilate's house, which means there's now a private audience, just Jesus and Pilate. And as they're sitting there walking through this, Pilate comes in and he says something. Uh, a lot of people will say about this particular conversation, they'll say, well, the Jews never really accused Jesus of anything. I agree, we don't have that recorded, but Pilate has gone from what do you accuse this man of to a very specific accusation of are you the king of the Jews? Somewhere between the outside and this side, the Jews have colored in the specifics for Pilate. He knows now what's going on. Now, some of you go, so does that mean that the Bible like isn't true? Stand by, if you go to the end of the book of John, guess what it says? This is what we wrote down. Basically it says, if all the things that had happened were written down, there are not enough books in the world to contain it. So John covers himself at the end of his book to say, listen, we wrote down what we could get to, but there's some gaps and we're expecting you to fill those in. What we can surmise from this thing is Pilate now knows what's happening. And this is what's so smart. This is where the Jews were so smart. They know that Pilate doesn't give a rip about their religious construct. The fact that Jesus is making trouble for the religion of the day does not matter to Pilate at all. But if you want Pilate's attention, if you want a Roman governor to care about what this Jesus guy was doing, what do you tell him? He's claiming to be a king. He, he's actually claiming to be an authority figure. Pilate, remind me, do you guys like authority figures that kind of rise up without being an emperor? Oh, you don't? Oh, good deal. Well, that's what he's doing. He's claiming to be a king a king of the Jews. So what Pilate is walking in and saying is not, hey, are you Jesus the Christ, the one who will die for the sins? Pilate doesn't care about that. What he's saying is, are you basically, and here's the word, are you an insurrectionist? That's the accusation that the Jews brought against him. He's trying to come in, and remember that word, insurrectionist, all right? I'm gonna use it later. Are you trying to come in and stand against the Roman government? So when he looks at him, and he says, are you the king of the Jews? That's the accusation. What happens next is a little unprecedented for Pilate, probably caught him napping. It says here, do you say this on your own accord or did others say it to you about me? All of a sudden, the interrogated has become the interrogator. Pilate's a judge. 
He's not used to those on trial looking at him and asking him questions. But Jesus is standing there and make no doubt about it. The judge of heaven is now asking a question to the judge of earth. It's a mighty showdown. Verses 35 and 36 say this. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Uh, Jesus is speaking into something pretty powerful. He's speaking into an eternal reality, something that Pilate has absolutely no category for. Pilate is again speaking about political power and about whether or not the kind of the, the whole point of this thing is whether or not Jesus is an insurrectionist. And instead he's sitting back going, let me just put it to you this way. If I was really worried about power, if I was really worried about wars, if I was really worried about force, which is not how my kingdom operates at all, does it make sense to you, Pilate, that my people would have just stood back as I commanded them and to give me over to you? He's basically using logic, something Pilate was very familiar with, to try and reason his way out of, it doesn't make sense. If I was really after earthly power, I would have used force, I would have used wars, I would have used everything at my disposal to try and get ahead, but that's not what it is. And the reality is that Jesus understood the end game here. Remember, it's already happened that Jesus has said, all power in heaven and on earth, all power and authority has been given to me. Remember that what is standing before Pilate is not just Jesus as he's walked the earth, but Jesus at the final days where he now says, I have been given all power and authority on heaven and earth. A supremely powerful being is standing before the judge of the earth and is doing this, laying his power and authority down because he recognizes that his final purpose is not yet finished. And he recognizes that Pilate is the tool that God is going to use to do something far more powerful than just make him an earthly king. He has not lost sight of his final purpose and that's gonna play into where we're going today. Let's take a look at verses 37 and 38 as we draw this conversation with Pilate, the little conversation to a close. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Remember, Jesus has just said, my kingdom. If he has a kingdom, he must be a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Uh, Jamie drove right through this point last week and we're gonna do it again right now. Uh, here's the reality. Rome was the truthless, philosophy-driven, sex-saturated superpower of its day. It's exactly where we are. Now, the one caution I would give some of you is like people will say sometimes, listen, it's so bad right now for Christians. It's so bad for people of faith. Culture is so insane. Guys, I got news for you. America in 2021 is nothing compared to Rome in the first century. The decadence and the insanity that was going on just in the streets alone, from pedophilia to prostitution, you name it. It was not just accepted, it was celebrated. We're not there, and yet Christians still flourished. So at times when we sit back and go, how is Christianity ever gonna survive? Just a little side note for today, it survived far worse, and it will continue to thrive in spite of whatever the culture throws at it, okay? Now, as we walk this out, what I need you to see is for the purposes of our, of our sermon today, 
Jesus is standing there, and you have to remember, Jesus is the incarnate word. The most reliable thing, the perfect thing that we have here on earth is God's holy word. He is referred to, Jesus, as the Logos. The beginning of the book of John said, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. What's it talking about? Jesus. Everything that was created was created through him. Keep on, hang on to that little tidbit. We're going to use it later. Jesus is the truth. He's saying it here. I have come to bear witness to the truth. He is incarnate truth. And yet he's looking at the judge of earth who has no category for it. Why? Because it's philosophical in Rome. The way that the culture operated was with philosophy. Philosophy looks at a concrete concept and goes, we must take it apart. It's never finished. It's never done. Does this sound like anything we're dealing with today? We are getting to a point where truth is a pretty fuzzy concept. Truth is whatever you make it. Truth is whatever you decide it is. No matter how scientifically provable something is, or how much of a rational reality it's become, you can decide whatever you want. Whether it comes to who you are, how you're made, or what you believe, it is all up for grabs right now. Jesus is in the same, same boat. And he's looking at Pilate and going, you don't get it. I'm here to bear witness to the truth. And Pilate says it exactly how people say it today. What is truth? There is no foundation. There is nothing so solid or so reliable that you could ever stand on it for any amount of time. It'll crumble beneath you. You gotta be flexible. Things have to be able to move. And Jesus is going, you don't understand truth because you don't understand me. You see, a philosophical culture that says truth is whatever you make it has absolutely no ability to figure out what an absolute truth of Jesus Christ would look like. Jesus stood in the midst of the philosophies of that day and did not say, I think. He did not say, what if I was, but instead said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through me. Because when he's lifted up, draws all sin to him, and dies that death, the reality is he now holds the keys to get to the Father. And he opened up an invitation for the entire world to get to come in, and the reality is you now get to say, do you call him Lord? But that's what he's standing in front of Pilate fighting for. Let's take a look at this last couple of verses because it brings all of this to a perfect conclusion. Let's take a look. Verse, second half of verse 38 all the way through 40 says, and after he had said this, P.S., Pilate doesn't even wait for Jesus to respond. He just simply says, what is truth, and walks away. It says, after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So you do, want me, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Here's Pilate's dilemma. This guy's not guilty of being an insurrectionist, and that's all I care about. He's guiltless. He is declared not guilty by Pilate three times. This verse 38 in chapter 18, versus, uh, and when you go to chapter 19, verse four and verse six, Pilate says three times he's not guilty, he's not guilty, he's not guilty. But Pilate has a problem, it's economic. If I don't kill this guy, I don't know what you guys will do, so you've got me a little bit. So guess what? It's back on you. What do you want to do with him? 
You guys have a custom. Do you want to release this guy? And they cry out, no. This is really great. Now, Barabbas was a robber. It's that last phrase right there, was a robber. Do you know what that word robber means? Insurrectionist. <laughs> this is a great foreshadowing. Here's the reality. They made the trade for a completely guiltless insurrectionist to set free a guilty one. See, the reality of what was about to happen on the cross is being foreshadowed right here. The guiltless will die for the guilty. And the trade was made here because Barabbas actually had tried, at some point was convicted of being an insurrectionist. That's what that word robber means. He had some, at some point come and stood against the Roman government and they went, we don't like that. So they locked him up and he was on trial. He was ready, he was waiting to die. And they said, no, we'll trade him out. The crowd is screaming, give us the guilty and let the guiltless die. There's something really uh, kind of crazy going on in the background here. Uh, Pilate's headquarters was assuredly within the city. And so probably within earshot, not far from what's going on at Pilate's house with Jesus, there's the temple. And at this point in the flow of everything that's happening with the Jews, the temple is preparing lambs, guiltless, blemish-free, perfect lambs, are under great duress because they're being prepared for slaughter. Their blood will flow. And yet, not far away, within earshot of what's going on, the ultimate lamb in Jesus Christ is being prepared for slaughter because his blood will flow, not just to cover sins momentarily until the next one are committed, but to cover sin once for all because it was his final purpose. You see, the Romans judged him and then turned him over to his own. R.C. Sproul has a great quote on this. This is what it says. In an indirect way, this judge of the earth, this public person, Pontius Pilate, acknowledged the sinlessness of Christ. Remember, declared him guiltless. And the man who stood before Pilate that day was truth incarnate and a lamb without blemish. Here's what I want you to see. We're gonna talk about three things. That's the story, all right? Now, what do we do with it? We've got to land somewhere with this material. I want to take a look at three things today. I want to talk about what do you see? I want to talk about what do you feel? And I want to talk about what do you do? The first one we hear is this. What do you see? Here's what I need you to see, all right? There's kind of two parts to this. The one part is the part that you can't do anything with. The fact that a guiltless, blameless, blemish-free lamb died. You're never gonna do that because we all stand guilty of sin. It's one of the great commitments that you make before you step into a relationship with Christ is you declare separation from him. I'm not guiltless. I've done wrong. But here's what I'm willing to admit to and there's so much more that I don't even understand that is in adversion in some way, shape or form to your perfect nature. You'll never do that. And so when we look at that, we have to look at that and just simply go, thank you. You bore everything that I bore. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in our own pain and our own hurt, we can actually believe that no one's ever suffered like we did, even Jesus Christ. The reality is he suffered far more than most, far more than any, because he did it guiltlessly. He chose to go to that cross for you, for me, and for all. 
and he did it and he didn't have to, but he chose to. And it's the greatest act of love the world has ever seen. But the part that I need us to see is not just what he did, but how he did it. Because that part, ladies and gentlemen, we can sit back and do something with. We can sit back and when the world starts to judge us the way that it judged Christ, we can keep our final purpose in mind. That's the part that's so great about what Jesus did. He never let the judgment of the world, he never let any judgment, whether you go back to week one of this series with uh, the betrayal of Judas, the denial of Peter, the judged by his own with the Jews, or this week, the judged by the world, he never let any of it deter him from his final purpose. I have something so radically loving to do that I'm not gonna let this earthly experience change it. My eyes on the prize. I love actually everyone so much that I'm gonna keep moving forward. That's what you have to see. You have to see not just what he did, but you have to see how he did it. Because the how he did it, that's our example, and that's what we wanna walk in. You have to see that. But you have to actually see the first part before you can even desire to emulate it. That's what you gotta see. What do you gotta feel? I think in just the grand scheme of life, we are constantly, because our world operates by power, by force, by wars and authorities, we understand hierarchy better than we understand anything else. So we're constantly kind of trying to find good guys and bad guys. It's the way every movie is set up, all right? If you gotta have a good guy, then you gotta have somebody for him to be against, and that guy is the bad guy. In this narrative, do you know what we do a lot? We go, oh, Pilate. Pilate's the bad guy. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. We've been saying it for years. He's the bad guy. We also flip around and we go, oh, maybe it's not Pilate. Maybe it's the Jews. The Jews are the bad guy. Let me ask you a question. Do you guys think that Jesus stood in Pilate's house or he stood in the garden when he was being arrested or he stood outside of Pilate's house with the Jews and he said, no, Pilate, I hate Pilate. If I could just get Pilate to understand, if I could get him to see me as truth, if I could get him to understand that philosophies are never gonna get him anywhere, I'm so mad at Pilate. I'm so mad at the Jews. Does that sound like the nature of the Jesus that you've come to know and love? Do you think he hated Pilate? There's no way. Do you know why? Jesus stood in front of Pilate and was so hopelessly in love with him because he'd created him. Jesus is standing before the Jews and he loves them, which is why he dealt with them so directly. People sit back and go, well, clearly Jesus hated the Jews. He's constantly fighting with the Pharisees. He didn't. You know what Jesus is great at? Matching levels of intensity. The Jews brought a 12 and he met him at a 12. He didn't hate him, but he spoke truth at a 12. The woman at the well needed like a two. And he matched the intensity needed. Super fragile, super arrogant. It was always the truth, but he brought it at the level that was needed. Huge surprise, he did it perfectly. Jesus is not looking at Pilate and saying, I hate you. Jesus is looking at Pilate and he is feeling a deep sense of love. His end game is not to win Pilate over or conquer Rome. It's to do something extravagant. It's to lay down his power and authority so that he can love extravagantly. It's not to win over by authority. God doesn't do that. He was all powerful anyway. He could have just trashed the earth. 
Instead, he loved his way into people's lives. It's still the way he's doing it. How do you come to Christ? You're overwhelmed by his love for you and you're brokenhearted about what you've done to stand against that love. You see, that's what we gotta feel. Kevin Ewell talks about it all the time. He asks us as a church, hey, when you drive through your neighborhood, are you brokenhearted for those who don't know Christ? Are you brokenhearted for the Smiths down the street who are living their lives and don't know who Jesus is? Are you brokenhearted by that? The reality is most of us aren't. Kevin's a natural evangelist. His heart breaks any time he sees somebody who doesn't know the Lord. Imagine that the Smiths not only live down the street and really don't have any impact on your lives, what if the Smiths had actively moved against you in your relationship with Christ? Like Jesus is experiencing now, actually judgment from the world. Will you love them then? Because if you don't see what he did, you will never get to how he felt and it gets really hard to get to what's coming next, which is what do you do? The reality is that we've gotta do this. We've got to let our brokenness drive our love for the world. You see, if you see what Jesus did and kinda go, oh yeah, that's okay, and you kinda don't really feel what he felt, then the reality is you're gonna take the sacrifice of Christ, which by the way, you didn't achieve and was not accomplished by your work on the cross, but his. You take this free gift of Jesus' sacrifice and atonement and you put it between you and the world saying, I'm different than you. You see, I have Jesus and you do not. So I'm over here and you're on the other side of his sacrifice. That's not how it was meant to work. It was meant to work this way. He died, he accomplished, his precious blood spilt for you. You now receive it and go, what do I have? I see what you did. I feel a brokenness over the people who don't have it and I go back out into the world to try and share the good news of the fact that this is for you too. Uh, Religious people do this. They take the sacrifice of Christ just like the Pharisees did and in piety and arrogance, they say, I'm not like you. Instead of saying, my heart breaks for you. You see what it does is you have two options. You are either going to feel the judgment of the world and try to defend yourself, or you're going to feel the judgment of the world and go love others. If you are arrogant and religious, you will take the sacrifice of Christ and weaponize it against a world that you don't want to minister to. If you take the sacrifice of Christ and receive it as a free gift, the world will stop looking at Christians as hypocrites and will start looking to them for care. That's the beauty of what we can do in a world that we are loving out of a motivation of brokenness and a heart that breaks because we feel what Jesus felt and we see what Jesus did. Gang, I can't say it any better than this. It's the lyrics of how deep the Father's love for us. It comes from this exact verse. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. You see, you have to hear your voice in the crowd outside of Pilate's house. You have to recognize that in that situation, we'd have likely done the same thing. 
You have to recognize that it was our sin that held him there. It was our sin that restrained him and pinned him. It was our sin. And we can't use what we've been given freely to weaponize against the culture. We have to sit back and when relationships fall apart, when we are judged, when we're denied, when we're betrayed, when we're judged by our own, when we're judged by the world, we have to allow the same process to take place that took place for Christ. We can't sit back and get defensive. We can't sit back and weaponize something we didn't earn, it's not ours. We're in possession of our salvation, but the goal is not to protect you from the world. We're supposed to be in the world, not of it. So the goal is to be in the world, salvation intact, exemplifying exactly what Jesus exemplified because we see it, we feel it, and it moves us to do something in the world not protect ourselves out of it. Do you guys see that? Do you guys see how the series leads up to this incredible moment where we are constantly motivated by what Christ did back out into a world where we can love others? This is one of the most evangelistic times of the year. We're talking about, we're looking at, and we're seeing this incredible move that Christ has done for us. And as we move towards Easter, the ultimate victory day We pray for our neighbors. We ask that they would come to church with us. We go out passionately. We dedicate a great sacrifice to ourselves, our time, our energy, our efforts, our talents, so that they might know a love that we've come to know and settle into because our hearts are broken that they would go through life and eternity without him. Let me pray for us. Lord, we sit back today in recognition of the fact that what you did for us was unbelievable. It was so far beyond anything that we could have ever imagined that when we actually experience, it starts to change the way we live. But in our humanity, we can so often forget the preciousness of what you did, what you experienced, so that you would call us your own, that you would be our God, and that we would be your people, and that you would be amongst us as our God. Lord, would you help us take this to heart? Would you help us start to draw this deep, into a place that becomes motivating, the see, the feel, and finally, the do. Lord, we love you. We say this in your name. Amen.